Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Good morning, Well family. Um, my name is Erin McLeod. I'm a covenant member. I serve on the prayer team. And my husband and I um, also do premarital counseling with couples um, here at the Well. And I am a part of the Cedar Park Lake Line CG. Jesus <laughs> uh, Yes, we are Jesus fan in fan club. Um, so today's reading is from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Um, might be up there if you want to follow along. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known in all to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. <clears throat> For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and there will be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of them who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Parsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is the word of the Lord. What up? How's it going? Glad y'all are here. My name is Yusuf. I'm the college director here at The Well, and... As usual, I'm very honored to be with you all this morning. And first things first, can we give another round of applause to Elizabeth and the missions team? Yes. Um, man, all this week I've been deeply encouraged thinking about Elizabeth and her call to go overseas. Like, man, this is our sister in Christ who's about to deploy to the other side of the world, join a team that's expanding God's kingdom 
super dope, right? And so as I've been thinking about her, I'm reminded that, man, though she's an international missionary, if you're a child of God, you're a missionary too, okay? Your mission field may look a little different though. It may not be halfway across the world. It may be here at Dell or in your home as you raise your kingdom warriors, right? Or on a campus like it is for me. Either way, we're all called as children of God to, to be people that share God's love with the people that we encounter through our words and our actions. And so usually when I start thinking missionally, I start thinking forward. I get really, really excited. I start thinking like thousands of years ahead and, and into God's kingdom. I'm like, maybe it's just me. Like I get really, really pumped thinking about how our small acts of living out and sharing the gospel now can have an eternal impact in the kingdom. Like there may be someone that comes up to you in the kingdom like, hey, thank you so much for asking my great, 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 great grandma if you could pray for her during y'all's lunch break because that planted a gospel seed in her heart that the Lord watered to salvation several years later. And me as her great, 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 great grandchild know Jesus and I'm now in the kingdom as a result of that. I find that fascinating that that can be the reality for us. But this week was a little different. I started to think about Elizabeth and surely she's going to make an impact. But then instead of thinking forward only, I started to think backwards a little bit. Like, wait, Elizabeth isn't just going to make a kingdom impact. She herself is also in the kingdom. So I started to think like, man, who led her to faith? And who led the person that led her to faith to faith? And then I got really deep because I was like, she's not the only one in the kingdom. I am too. So I started to think about my story. Okay, who led me to faith? Like, okay, Daniel led me to faith. Who led him to faith? And as I thought about that and looking at our passage today, I realized with some help that, man, what we see in our passage is, is 11 apostles and 120 of them accompanying him. What we see happen in our passage today is those people in our passage, they started a gospel movement thousands of years ago. And I'm in the kingdom today as a result of what they did. And as I started to reflect on that, I marveled. It was just like, oh my, it was almost an existential moment. Like, oh my God, I'm saved because I'm what I see happening in this passage today. So I started to think, man, how did they do that? How did they do that? Along with the power of God, what were the essential ingredients needed to make that happen? And I think the answer is twofold. It's one, they were a team on mission, right? They were a group of people with a shared goal and they were a team that multiplied. Meaning they sought not to hoard the blessings of Christ, but to share it with others in such a way that people outside of the family of God would not only desire to come in, but receive a personal invitation. And because this was true of the 131 in our passage, many of us stand here today, not only having heard the name of Jesus, but having placed our faith in him. And so the question today is what does it look like for us in here? as a family of God, as a team, to, to be on mission and to be a team that multiplies? What does that look like? So we'll find a few answers today as we make some observations. Um, and so I'm excited to dive in. We'll pick up a few things that hopefully we can apply towards the end of our sermons, uh, sermon. So let's dive in. What does it look like to be a team on mission and a team that multiplies? We see our first clue in the first couple words of our passage. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Stop. Why is that important to note, right? Well, let's flash back to the last couple of conversations that Jesus has had with his disciples between the moment he resurrected 
and the moment that he ascended. After his resurrection, Matthew 28, he tells them, go and make disciples of all nations. But then right before he ascends in Acts 1 verse 4, he says, wait, before you go, wait in Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high. The very Holy Spirit is going to come and enable you to live out the Great Commission. So he commands them, wait in Jerusalem. And then what does he do? He leaves earth and he ascends into heaven. So here's what I can tell you. Uh, in my short 30 years of life, I've, there's one observation that I'm pretty sure is just facts, right? It's that when authority is present, it's easy to be obedient. When authority leaves the room, it's sometimes hard to be obedient, right? And it almost feels like human nature to let our obedience, obedience to authority slip when the authority is seemingly not present. I know that's true for me, right? Growing up, you know how many times my parents left me at home alone? And if it was during the school year, they would say the same thing every time before they left. Yusuf. No, no playing game. No television. No TV. You must do your homework and read your books. That's what they would say every single time. Shobo, that means you hear in Yoruba. And I would say the same thing. Yes, sir. Then they would leave. And guess what I would do? Everything they told me not to, right? I'd be like, homework at a time like this? I've got to get caught up on the prop family. So I would storm the pantry, get my favorite snacks, and then binge watch Disney Channel. That's what I would do every single time. It's a relatable experience because it's human nature, right? That's why none of us are surprised by the movies or the shows that, that are based on the plot where the parents leave and the kids do something super unpredictable, like, I don't know, throw a rager, right? That's a party for those of y'all that know. <laughs> Inviting all their friends, right? Super original. No, it's, it's predictable, right? It's super predictable. It feels like human nature bends in the direction of throwing obedience to authority out the window when authority isn't present. And if you're like, Yusuf, not me, right? Not me. When I was a little kid, I never disobeyed my parents when they weren't in the room. Good for you. Let me ask you this. How often do you drive over the speed limit? And how often do you do it knowing there's a cop watching you, right? Chances are your behavior is a little different knowing the authorities are present. Am I getting closer? And if you're like, nope, still not me. I never go over the speed limit. Then okay, you win. Just stay out of the left lane for the love, right? <laughs> We see the disciples, though it's human nature for them to see Jesus leave earth and allow their obedience to leave with him, they remain obedient. And not just some of them, all of them, right? It wasn't just some of them being obedient and the other guys are like, oh man, you guys are taking what Jesus said way too seriously. They all had a shared desire to be obedient to what Jesus said. And this seems like a small point, but it's crucial to understanding what it means and, and what it looks like to be a team on mission and a team that multiplies. We can't see the teachings of Jesus as just pure entertainment or, or suggestions. And I feel like in Western culture, it's so hard to not fall into the trap of getting into the rhythm of just going to church on Sunday and letting the words of Christ pass through one ear and out the other without ever asking them, what, God, what do you want us to obey? There's obedience. We can't just see what Jesus teaches and then talk about it for hours over coffee. 
And as much as I love that, there's nothing wrong with that unless it stops there. We are meant to discuss and dialogue the teachings of Jesus, but we're called more than anything to do the teachings of Jesus, to put them into practice. And we seek to act them out, not alone, but together. See, being a team on mission and a team that multiplies requires collective obedience to the teachings of Jesus. It can't just be some of our jobs to take Jesus' teachings seriously. We all have to value it. There's no way around it. Because without it, without their collective obedience, we would not be here. Without it, there is no movement. Without it, there's no kingdom expansion. There's no multiplication. It's important. So as they head back to Jerusalem, you see collective obedience. But where they decide to camp out in Jerusalem gives you a clue as to what their collective obedience is rooted in. Where they go tells you what's motivating them to obey. Where do they go? Verse 13, they go to the upper room. And this isn't just any room. See, there's something very, very special about this room. Very special. This is the room where where the savior of the world performed the lowest act the servant could do for all of them. He washed all of their feet in that room. This is the room where the savior of the world shared his last meal with them before he was put to death. This is the room where the first communion took place, where, where he would take the bread and break it to represent his body that was soon to be broken and pour the wine that was representing his blood that was about to be shared. See, this was not just any room, but this room clearly represents their shared experience of deep intimacy with their Savior. And so we see this team has a desire to obey, but it's not out of religious duty, right? It's not like, oh, guys, well, I mean, we're the first Christians. I guess we kind of have to do what Jesus says now. No, it's out of an overflow of worship, an overflow of their shared intimacy with Christ. It's not just obedience. It's worship-fueled obedience. And I believe that being a team on mission starts here. I believe that being a team that multiplies starts here, right? Else we're no different than any other religion that says, hey, this is what you have to do for God. This isn't us doing for God. It's responding to what God has done for us. And we see that this room symbolizes what's at their very foundation of their faith. You see, what makes us a family in here, what makes us a family, what makes us a team is a shared experience. What experience? that if you place your faith in Christ, we are in the kingdom and in relationship with the king of the universe. None of this we deserve, right? None of us got in because we were on our best behavior, because we were good enough for God. Our good deeds were like filthy rags. But God being rich in mercy, he sent his son for his body to be broken, his blood to be spilled for you and for me. The foundation of our team, the foundation of our family, is the shared experience of intimate communion with our God through the body and the spilled blood of the Savior. And before we go out on mission to win the world, it is a must that we realize that the very fuel for our mission is intimacy with the master. Else you end up cheating on the master with his mission. And I can, I tend to do that. I love multiplication. And sometimes I have to remember to pray. I'm a strategist. Feel like, man, 
UT needs people to come out and share the gospel. So I'm in the wipe, I'm in the freaking room with the whiteboard doing all these diagrams. And then I'm going and have to remember, oh wait, I haven't prayed once before going. It starts with intimacy. How much I desire for us to live on intentional mission. If you know me, you know that that's true. You know how much I love evangelism. If you knew me, you'd rightfully expect me to come out here and give a rah-rah sermon about how we're all meant to be multiplying, great commission, go out there and do it, give you all the tools, the strategy. And to do that, I would be wrong. I'd be wrong. Because to start there would be to completely miss the very foundation of the great master's mission. It's intimacy with the master, right? And if we start there, then we'll desire to obey. Not out of religious duty, but out of an overflow of our love for God. That's what they did. And now don't get me wrong, strategy isn't bad, and we'll see that later on in our passage, but they didn't start with strategy, and that's the point. They started with communing in God, with God. What does it look like to be a team on mission and a team that multiplies? Collective obedience fueled by shared intimacy with the master. What's beautiful is that this shared intimacy doesn't just produce obedience, but we see that it produces something else in verse 14. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's beautiful. Their shared intimacy, not just produce, it doesn't just produce obedience, but it produces a unity amongst them like you wouldn't believe. And before we casually write this off as like not a big deal, it's just a bunch of people praying together, let's not forget who the people in this room were, right? Verse 13, if you do some research, you realize, okay, you've got someone who was Jewish yet considered a traitor because he was a tax collector and worked for the Roman government. And you've got Jewish fishermen who were likely losing all of their hard-earned money to the corruption of tax collectors. And then you have someone in there that's just wanting to overthrow the Roman government entirely, altogether. Politically, socially, culturally, by today's standards, these people have no business being in a room together. And yet, what's the one thing they have in common? They're all on their knees. They're all devoted. They're all of one accord. They're all united in prayer. You look at this room, what do you see? People with different backgrounds, different interests, different roles, different gifts, yet united in prayer. And a unified devotion is produced by a shared experience of intimacy with Christ. Have you ever noticed, and I didn't notice this until a couple years ago, the Lord's prayer, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray through Lord's prayer, he never uses words like you and I and me, like me, myself, and I. He never uses words like that, right? I mean, the first two words are Father. Those are the two main characters in this prayer. God and us, right? Our Father. Say it with me. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God language and us language. There's no me, myself, and I. It's, it's we, ourselves, and us. Yeah. 
And so at the heart of the Lord's prayer is not just the desire to strengthen our relationship with God, but to strengthen our relationship with one another. Their shared intimacy would produce, uh, with Christ, is supposed to produce the shared intimacy with one another. And so you ask, man, what does this have to do with multiplying team? What does that do with that? According to Jesus, John 13, 35, this is one of the greatest witnesses to the rest of the world is our love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, that our greatest witness, our greatest evangel- evangelism tool is, is how we unify under Christ. It's foundational to the movement of multiplication. So if you can get a Trump follower and a Biden supporter in a room together, on their knees together, united in prayer together, one devotion to Christ, you will show me something otherworldly. Like if I could somehow convert that into a gospel tool, I would use that instead of three circles. I would. You, the mission seems the only one that's laughing. Everyone else is like, what is three circles? What's going on? Uh, join a DMI and you find out. Tyler, you owe me for that one. Okay. Show me someone who does something horrible and, and yet ask for forgiveness they know they don't deserve, and yet it's granted to them in such a way that both parties remain on the same team, unified through prayer and devotion to Christ. You show me that, you're showing me something special, something I can't find here in this world, something otherworldly. That's the fragrance of kingdom culture. That's what it smells like to be on God's team. And for those who catch a whiff of that, it draws them in. It draws them in. The world craves a love like that. At the foundation of a team on mission and a team that multiplied is a shared experience of intimacy with Christ that not only produces collective obedience, but produces intimacy with one another. And that's a unity that can't be manufactured. It's a beautiful thing. How y'all doing? We're only two verses in. I got about two hours left. Y'all good? Taking y'all to Nigerian church today. Last point. If you are someone who has placed your faith in Christ, you are called to join a body of believers and be actively involved in the building up of God's church and the disciple-making process. That's what we see in the early church. And the disciple-making process can look like you being discipled for a season, but then learning what it looks like to pour out into other people, to make disciples. And though our roles look different, we are ultimately called to all do that, to be active participants, not just passive spectators. You're you're not called to be a fair-weather fan of the church, just clapping from the stands or booing from the stands when you don't like a play call. If you are in Christ, you're not in the stands. You're on the team called to get involved, called to help build God's church and engage in the disciple-making process. Why do I say this? You see verse 15, Peter stands up and begins to teach from God's word. Immediately, we see him walking out his God-given role as a leader amongst God's people, a leader in God's church. Though his role looks different though, everyone in that room is actively involved. What can we say about the rest of them? The text says there was 120 of them that weren't apostles. They were just disciples. But if you keep reading the book of Acts, all the rest of the New Testament, you see all of them were actively engaged, 
giving their time, talents, and treasures to building God's church, actively engaged to the end of the disciple-making process. In the next chapter alone, you see 3,000 people come to Christ. Who's going to disciple them? It's those in the room that have been following Jesus for years that were now going to teach these new converts how to live according to the way of Jesus. They were all engaged, actively involved in the building of God's church and engaged in the disciple-making process. And if they weren't, if they didn't do that, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be here today. And sometimes the reality is, man, sometimes our roles not only look different, but sometimes our roles change over time. That's true for Matthias. We see it in his passage, right? As Peter's teaching from scripture, he's showing that God desires for there to be a 12th apostle. And so one of the 120 is going to have to step up. Quick side note. Scripture tells them explicitly to fill the role of apostle, but it doesn't tell them who to pick. So what do they do? They start to strategize. Verse 21 through 22, they're like, hey, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly who, but strategically it makes sense for it to be someone who's been with us since Jesus was baptized to witness as, and a witness to his resurrection. That sounds like strategy to me, right? There's nothing wrong with strategy. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not going to go home and throw all my gospel tools away, throw away my college strategic plan, and just wing it. I'm not going to do that. Strategy isn't bad. It just doesn't come first. Sorry, that was a side note. Back to the story. They asked God to show them who to pick through casting lots, and the lots fall on Matthias. So Matthias becomes the first apostle. Matthias' role changed from that of a disciple to that of an apostle, but he was always actively involved. And this is pretty similar to my story. As some of you guys know, I never thought that I would be a college director in full-time ministry. Never thought. I always thought that God's plan for me was to make a lot of money as an electrical engineer in God's kingdom, serve the church faithfully, and be a witness to his coworkers. And I did just that. Even though everyone in college would tell me, like, man, oh, dude, I think the Lord's calling you into full-time ministry. And I just wouldn't buy it. And my thoughts would get all passive aggressive. Like, man, I think the Lord's calling you to mind your own business and stay in your own lane. But you're not doing that. So I guess we're in the same boat. So where do we go from here? All right, mind your business. Four years into being an engineer, I start to feel that in my own heart from God, right? Okay, maybe God is calling my role to change and to shift into being in a full-time ministry. But the truth is I was always actively involved in the building of God's church, in the disciple-making process. It's just my role looks different now. And if you're a child of God, the same is true for you. Active involvement in the building of God's church, engaging in the disciple-making process. It's crucial to being a team on mission and a team that multiplies. Like, what if we didn't just come to church on Sunday, but, but found a way to give our time, talents, and treasures to seeing the kingdom expand through it? But what if we didn't just consume of the church, but contributed to the building up of it? What, what if we didn't just complain or criticize the church, but actually found ways to be constructive? What, what if we came to CG not just looking to have our needs met, but prioritizing the needs of others? What, what if the problem we had at the well was there were too many people willing to serve, too many people willing to go on Travis's church plan? Too many people willing to be sent overseas. What if there were too many non-believers in here that were invited by too many God-fearing co-workers? 
What if there were too many people desiring to hear from the Spirit of God, to walk by the Spirit, so that we would bless those inside and outside of the church? This was the heartbeat of the local church in Acts when it first started. They were a team on mission, and they were a team that multiplied because everyone was collectively obedient. They shared an intimacy with Christ and an intimacy with one another, and they were actively involved in the building up of the body of Christ and in the disciple-making process, even though that their roles look different. I'll close with this. One of the most mind-blowing things about this passage is that you have Peter, a leader of God's church, standing up to talk about Judas. Now, if you recall, Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. So let that sink in a little bit. Someone who denied Jesus is appointed as a leader in God's kingdom movement. And he's talking about someone who betrayed Jesus and will spend the rest of eternity apart from God. Both made mistakes, yet one was redeemed, reconciled, recommissioned, repurposed as a leader in God's movement, as a leader on God's team, and the other wasn't. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Peter and Judas? I think the answer is in Matthew 26. Guess where? Upper room. That, that same upper room where they all shared the most intimate moments with the Savior is the same room where Jesus tells his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. Betray him. And after Jesus tells them that, verse 22 documents the response of the disciples. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Then we get to verse 25, and it's Judas's turn to answer. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Jesus says to him, you had said so. Y'all noticing the difference there? Every single disciple in that room considered Jesus Lord, Master, except for Judas. To him, Jesus was just a teacher. Might have been a good one, but just that. Why is that important? We see through Judas that it's possible to move with God's team, but never actually be on God's team. It's possible. It's possible to go through all the religious motion. I go to church. I go home. I go to Bible study, community group. I go to this. I go to that. To where we are affiliated with God's team. We're on the fringes. We're associated with God's team, but we're not actually on God's team. Romans 6.23 says the way on God's team is to receive Jesus as Lord, not rabbi, not good teacher, not great philosopher, Lord, yeah. master. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If Jesus is not your Lord, you are not on God's team. That's right. Peter and Judas both sinned gravely against the Messiah and both experienced a tremendous amount of shame as a result of their sin. But Peter, in receiving Christ as Lord, cast his sin and shame onto the cross to be absorbed by Christ's death. And what does he receive? Forgiveness, grace that transforms him and empowers him to continue on in the purpose that God has for him. 
But Judas, being consumed with his selfish ambition, refused to cast his sin and shame to the cross by acknowledging Jesus as Lord. So he ultimately absorbs it himself, leading to his physical and spiritual death. Why do I share this? Because if we're honest, we all have a lot more in common with Peter and Judas than we would like to admit. Even for those of us that are on God's team, selfish ambition tempts us to not look out for God's people, to to be a me, myself, and I type of team as opposed to us, ourselves, and our, or or we. We're, We're tempted to not care about his church, not care about the lost. We're tempted to not care about being obedient to his call, to not care about being intimate with him that that transforms into intimacy with other believers, but to look out for ourselves. And though sin corrupts us, though all of us are like sheep that have gone astray, Christ comes in perfection, doing what we can't. He does nothing out of selfish ambition. He's completely obedient to the Father. And rather than cast us off like we deserve, he invites us into intimacy with the Father by teaching us how to pray. And you have the Son of God teaching humans how to pray and saying, Our Father, there is an invitation into this. And yet in his most trying time, the team that he put together, spent three years pouring into, are nowhere to be found when he gets arrested to be crucified. See, Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. But they all abandoned him to be tortured on a tree. They all scattered. And yet he endured to die on a cross. Why? Because he loves you. And he loves me so deeply. And he wants us to be a part of his kingdom family. He wants us to be a part of his team He resurrects and sends us his spirit to empower us to be a family on mission, to empower us to be a team that multiplies. So I don't know where you are today, but I can say that I want you on the team just like Jesus wants you on the team. And so here's here's where we start. Here's where it starts. Is Christ your Lord? Have you given your life to him? Have you gotten off the throne of your life and put Christ there? Have you surrendered your selfish ambition to the foot of the cross and placed him on the throne of your life? If not, what's keeping you from making that decision? Start there. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you are on his team. And so what does it look like to walk it out? Growing in intimacy with the master in a way that transforms our relationships with with our brothers and sisters in the faith that builds intimacy with them. And that worship overflows into obedience, not just for some of us, but for all of us. That we plug into a community that's serious about collectively following the teachings of Jesus and find a church that is serious about expanding the kingdom of God and making disciples and being actively involved in the church and the disciple-making process by the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe if we are collectively obedient out of a shared experience of deep intimacy with Christ, unified in prayer, actively involved in the body, engaging in the disciple-making process, we will be a team on mission and we will be a team that multiplies. And ultimately a team that gets to see God move through us in ways that we can never imagine. Amen? Amen. And let's pray. God, thank you so much. It just feels like thank you isn't enough. To say thank you just doesn't feel like enough. 
God, thank you. Though we have fallen short, though we have spit in your face, you still desire to call us mine, yours, your children. God, I just reflect on Jesus, knowing that every single disciple would abandon him, that one would betray him. And what did he do? He loved him the whole time. He washed his feet. God, would we in here understand that, the, the, the impact of that, that the Savior of the world has knelt to wash our feet? Would we receive his act of love and generosity? Would we receive it by placing him on the, Lord, on the throne of our lives as Lord? And for those of us that have done that, God, would we be empowered by his spirit to walk it out, to be a team, to not allow selfish ambition to corrupt our motivation? but to actively be selfless, obedient to you, sharing intimacy with you, communion with you and our brothers and sisters in the faith, actively involved in the church, in the building up of your kingdom, being poured into, pouring out, making disciples. And it doesn't have to be here at the well, God, but I pray that all of us would find a place to plug into, be a part of building your church until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.